Traders Live podcast. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Traders Live podcast, our first episode for 2024. We've got a great guest lined up today. Many of you in the Australian community know him. Uh, his name is Luke, aka Whippet. G'day, Whippet. How are you? I'm good, Chagas. How are you? Yeah, very good. Very good. And of course, none other than my co-host, Mato, joining me today from a caravan of all places. Mato, how are you, mate? Caravan of courage, mate. Yeah, no, good. Happy New Year, fellas. Yep. No, great. Listen, for those of you who don't know Whippet, he's a very impressive um, trader that I've sort of had the privilege of knowing for a few years. Met him one night at a bar at Brisbane. Don't ask about that. Um, 2023 for Whippet was great. Uh, I know that you have many things that you would like to say that you can improve on, but very impressive track record. His equity curve is a straight line to the top right hand side of the screen like your equity curve is like straighter than the lines i draw with a ruler like it is very impressive you had a 76 percent win rate over 2023 we're going to dive into all of that also you've got an option strategy a longer term strategy you do what storage container business you've had for a few years now you do bow hunting like it's, it's going to be a great great episode so we're really looking forward to it and thank you for coming on no worries pleasure mate before we get started uh let's jump over to the trading our hour challenge starts do you have any um any suggestions or or sort of thoughts or feelings how you're going to approach the hour not really. I've been thinking long and hard about it just in the lead up to this. And I don't know, the market sort of wasn't doing much this morning and commodities didn't do much overnight either. So I'm probably just going to have to take a wild stab at the index, either short or long here in a minute and see what happens, I guess. Make something out of nothing, mate. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, all right. Hmm. Well, with that, mate, I'm going to go ahead and start your hour right about now. Okay. So feel free to place any trades or do anything that you want. Uh, go for gold, mate. So, uh, yeah, mate, while you are thinking about that, I really just want to first delve into your year in review, and then we'll probably talk about some of your trading setups with your match um, plays and things like that. Mm -hmm. And really learn about that. But firstly, it looks like you're going to put on a trade here. What have you got for us? I think I'll just D20 short on the index for now and just see whether it pops back down or whether we break um, break this level here that it's sort of trading at and see yep. what happens. Yep. No, great, great. Just, sorry, um, Whip, just hide that. Um, just click that little hide on your screen there so we can see. All right. Perfect. Short. 20 short. Here we short. go. you still got a bit of margin up your sleeve too, mate. Just keep, yeah. uh, keep an yeah. eye on that. Great. Mate, 2023, uh, talk to me about that. You you walked away with $33,230 profit or thereabouts. Um, if anyone wants to follow along at home, you have Twitter. Um, you've got your year in review there. Can you talk to me just a bit about how you found 2023 as a trading year for you personally? Um. If I compare it to 2022, um, it was it seemed to be a bit tougher for me. It sort of started out okay the first couple of months, but I just couldn't, um, I don't know whether it was the conditions or what it was, but I just couldn't really, you know, find any, not home runs, but 
I was struggling sort of day to day, especially through the middle of the year, just to get any runs on the board. Like I was, especially with the intraday trading, so the match scalping, which is my normal style, it was just hard to find setups. And when you did find setups, it was hard to get you know, any meaningful size on. I'm not a big size trader as it is, but even for me, you know, it was just hard to get size on consistently through that middle part of the year. And I did find it very challenging. And at the end of the day, it was more a case of trying to limit the downside than, than maximise the upside just in the conditions that we were trading at the time. That's sort of how it felt to me. I was just trying to be patient and wait for conditions to improve and hopefully, you know, maximise the opportunity when when they did. And I, I found that in December, which was my best month, that was probably the best conditions I've felt we'd seen all year, even though it's usually a lower liquidity month, especially towards the back end. I just found it much easier to find good opportunities and fairly consistently through that month of December. So, sorry, Whippet, can you just, um, a couple of things, the the profit that you made, what was that um what was that from in terms of a capital base? And then can you just give us, because you've got, um, I, I guess, three strategies that you follow from what, what you've said. So there's the match scalping, uh, options trading, and the active portfolio kind of management side. So in, when you speak about, you know, December and how it was a good month, et cetera, just let us know what what um, kind of strategy uh, worked the best, et cetera. Yeah, so in terms of capital base, on my intraday stuff, i just run a 40k account, um, which is obviously leveraged. So, you know, there's sort of 200k buying power there um, on the bigger names. And then I also have a second intraday account through a prop firm, which I have a bit more leverage with. And I only started trading that account from the middle of 2023. So I'm six months in on that one. Um yeah, so it just gives me a bit of optionality, I guess, uh, more flexibility in terms of borrow and stuff on the intraday stuff as well. Um, and then my sort of longer-term account, I call it long-term, but it's more of a actively managed portfolio. And that that sort of, um, you know, that's much larger capital base than, than what I trade intraday, and it's a bigger profit contributor than my intraday stuff as well. So it's just something that I trade actively. I probably trade two or th- place two or three trades a day on that actively managed account. And last year, just as an example for for twenty twenty three, I traded about seventy five stocks. And the driver of my trading decisions in that actual account is pretty much um, fundamental based. So I've just got. I maintain a list of stocks that I like fundamentally uh, that I'm happy to own for longer term. And then I actively trade those stocks over days, weeks, months and years um, within that account. And that style of trading is, when I say active, it's sort of scaling into positions and scaling out. So I take lots of trades. Uh, I've took over 600 trades in that account in 2023 and my average trade size um, on each individual trade in that account, it's only three to $5,000. And I'll build positions up to about $50,000 is about the maximum 
um, single position size that I would like to get to in that account um, in terms of managing risk. And yeah, I just trade in and out of those stocks every day, basically across, you know, there's at right now, I think I'm holding about 15 names in that portfolio and it's, it's about 50% invested um, on the capital base that I have available uh, for that account at the moment. And I was much heavily, I was, I was more heavily invested right up to the end of October. And then we've had that massive rally, sort of 10% move from the end of October through to the end of December. And it, I've just been selling constantly into that rally. So I've taken a fair bit of cash off the table in that one and uh, you know, looking for a pullback in the market to get back in. And then the options strategy. So I've been trading options through interactive brokers for well, since 2015, the end of 2015, I started uh, trading options. And I only got into options by chance. So I, I was aware of options. I didn't know how to access them as a retail trader. The op, the, 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 um, the options to trade options from from an Australian market perspective was very limited at that time. There wasn't many brokers that would give retail access to options trading. Um, but the way I trade options, sorry, how I got into options to start with, I actually came across um, just some videos on YouTube by a fella called the Blue Collar Investor. And his name is Alan Elman. He's a bit hard to listen to, US bloke, a bit drony, but he just got me really interested. I saw some videos on there how he trades options and he was selling options for the premium income. So instead of buying options and speculating on a stock going up if you bought calls or going down if you bought puts and taking the risk of time decay on that premium, owning that premium, you do the opposite. You're selling that premium. So I have a strategy where I sell puts on stocks that I'm happy to own at a certain price. So let's use ANZ Bank as an example. If ANZ was trading at $25 and I thought it was into it, coming into a zone where I thought it was good value fundamentally, and instead of buying that stock directly, I would just go and sell puts maybe slightly below, say a $24.50 strike price put option, I would sell a put a contract to open a position, and I would take that premium. That premium gets credited to my account. If ANZ finished below that strike price of that put at $24.50 or below at the date of expiration of that option, I would have the cash available in that account to take ownership of those shares. And then I would turn around and sell call options over ANZ shares at, say, $25 or, or higher, if possible, and continue collecting monthly um, premiums from selling those options over those stocks that I'm happy to own. So that's sort of in a nutshell, how that, how I trade on that account. Um, I'm selling premium, selling puts, taking in the premium, own the stocks if I get exercised, and then I turn around and sell calls over those stocks. I don't buy options in that account. So I'm not going long options by buying calls or buying puts. I'm short options all the time by selling calls or selling puts. I know it sounds confusing to a lot of people when we talk about options, but once you take the time to understand them, they're a pretty simple tool. And I think where a lot of people get into trouble is they they use them incorrectly and they are too aggressive in how they use them. 
so they they they're just taking on too much leverage um, in how they're using them, and that that tends to burn a hole in your pocket pretty quickly uh, when you get things wrong. So I suppose, mate, um, the the money that you got there, in case you do do get exercise and have to buy the shares, that's earning credit interest as well. I guess that's part of the the benefit of it. It does. It's not not very significant, but the way I guess it's you can look at options to as a way of enhancing the yield of your portfolio. So if you've got a portfolio of primarily blue chip stocks, because there's there's only about 70 or 80 stocks on the ASX that you can actually um, sell options, that have options quoted over them. I'm talking about exchange-traded options, not not the specky end of the market where you can buy listed options. These are exchange-traded options that you can buy and sell options over. There's about 80, 70 or 80 mainly large cap stocks that you can do that on. Um, yeah. Um, Whippet, do you mind just uh, keeping that web trader tab open just for the screen sharing pur- purposes? Perfect. Thank you, mate. Um, we've just touched on, I guess, the three ways that you uh, approach the market. I just want to hone back in on, on what you do with um I guess what you mainly put out through your Whippet account um, and the Samika there. Back on 2023, you had two goals there, one being sized up and then two, finding some new setups. Mm-hmm. Um, I noted that that first goal sizing up, your average trade size was about $3,000 larger this year than it was last year. Talk to me about uh, your sizing up and and how did you feel more comfortable was there better trading opportunities where you felt like you could size up yeah can you can you just touch on that sizing up journey in in 2023 yeah so it's been a very big struggle for me from day dot is sizing but uh, i'm a very risk averse person by nature and i don't handle i don't handle losses very well so I'm always super cautious about putting size on anything that I'm not, you know, 99% confident in. And I think last year was a real struggle for me to, in particular, to size up because the setups weren't as frequent, for one, and the liquidity seemed to be a lot lower. And in fact, I, I confirmed that thought today. I read the ASX um monthly trading release from from Australian Securities Exchange and and they showed that uh, daily liquidity in 2023 was 17% lower on average than 2022, which is, that's massive. That's a huge drop in liquidity. And and I felt that was very noticeable, um, especially during the middle of the year, which was just dead and the market was just really choppy. So, yeah, I think I did size on the few decent opportunities that I saw. I felt like I did size pretty well on those this year. But in saying that, there's very few times I can't even think of, well, I can think of probably one or two times where I've put on more than a hundred grand in a trade, which is not much. Like, you know, there's blokes out there doing 500K million dollar positions intraday, which is yeah, pretty significant, um, and they're happy to take on that risk. But for me to put on a position over 100K, it's pretty rare. 
um, in this market at the moment. I'd like to do more, but it's just challenging to get that size on, especially on the match. It's just, you know, you're going to move the price if you try and put on too much size in most names um, in the match, uh, doing that sort of position size. So, But I think one of the contributors to that average position size being higher throughout the year was probably less trading intraday. So when I put trades on after the open, outside of the match, I usually size way down. I'm, I'm talking, you know, $5,000, $3,000 trade, you know, even in large cap stocks. I just do really small position sizes trying to work on an edge in that uh, particular in those particular setups after the open because historically I haven't had an edge after the open and I found that out pretty early in my journey when I first started intraday trading. After the first couple of months, I found that I could make money on the open and I would just give it back through the day. So I quickly tried to phase out those um, post-match trades to try and improve my profitability in that first year and it did work. You know, recognising that I had no edge there pretty quickly was a good thing for me uh, longer term because then I knew I could always come back. As I'm trying to discover new edges, I could always come back to my match trading, you know, and rely on that where I had a definite edge in the market. So you, um, you to... see that as your edge, with it? Oh, yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I've got – so I look for setups and I've got a couple of – um, images here which I'll just pop up to help me explain uh, what I'm looking for. So let's look at a couple I've done recently. Um, so this is S Center Group. So what I'm looking for in the order book is I'm looking for plenty of protection. So this is a short setup for me. You've got heaps of sellers in the book there above. Two ninety nine, you know, three dollars. You got two hundred fifty k wall there of protection, and then there's hundred k walls at every level above that. All right, so the book is really thick on my so sorry, side. Sorry to cut in with it. Is this um, just for slow people like me? Is this um, so? It's center, which is obviously an S. So is this like just before you know ten oh seven or whenever the actual yep. share starts trading? So this the, is one second before the yep. open. Okay. So I've, ta- I've paused the open it here of that, of that particular share of that particular stock in yeah. that group. So I've paused it here using um, Spark. So all these screenshots are out of Spark for anyone that's not familiar with that. Um, so I've taken this trade short here in the match, knowing that I've got a super thick book above me. But when you look at the book below me in in my favour, I want the stock to go down to make money. It's a lot thinner, so you've got a lot less bids stacked in the book immediately in front of my match price, right? So I'm expecting this stock to drop from 299, you know, probably down to 295 that would be nice. But as a scalper, I'm happy to take on a on a denomination this low, I'm happy to take one tick. If I get two ticks, that's really good. If I get three or four ticks, that's brilliant. You know, given that a three-tick move in this name is a 1% move. Very rare that I'm taking scalps more than 1% um, in size. So looking at that setup, I'm pretty confident I can get one tick minimum. 
And if I can get, you know, 10,000 shares short on that particular stock or more, that's even better without pulling that match price lower, then I'll take that trade every day of the week. And I'm, so, and I'm super, super confident that that stock's going to go in my favour. Okay, so this is not a stock that you already hold. This is no. one that you're looking at in the morning, and you. Yep. And so, where would you put where would you put your offer? Looking at that, so I'm putting my offer at two ninety eight or two ninety seven. In that particular mm-hmm. example, I'm pretty sure I have my offer at two ninety eight. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to put my offer on the match because often you'll get algos will come in like two or three seconds before the actual open and they will take up all of the liquidity against 299. So there might only be, you know, 100 shares at that 299 level that actually get get um, filled on the match mm, okay. because the algos will come in and they'll absorb all that a few seconds before the open. So you've got to get, you'd be, you've got to get your offer in the book in this example. You know, I'd like to get my offer in the book a couple of minutes before the match at a price where I'm comfortable to get filled, and I would I would have um, a cancellation ready to go on that ticker right up until the open. So I've just got to go one click to pull my order. If for any reason that price pulls down off two ninety nine to a to a level that I don't want to get filled at, so even mm. if it pulled down to two ninety seven, I don't want it to match at two ninety seven and then wick up and fill me at two ninety eight. I don't want that to happen. I want to get filled at two ninety nine. So I put my offer in at 298, expecting to get filled against that 299 wall. And if that's not going to happen, I'll pull my order uh, if, if the price starts to pull down. Mm-hmm. So in these situations, there's so much going on in these match in that match time. You've got two minutes between groups, two minutes and 15 seconds to make your decisions, get your orders in, and then commit to what you're going to take. So sizing, back onto that sizing question, Sizing is something that's very difficult to manage well in the moment in in these sort of match setups. So if I've got, because I'm watching four stocks in every group, so that's 20 stocks every open I've got my eyes on. So in each group I'm watching four stocks and often if there's more than one setup that I'm happy to take, I don't have a lot of size on either of them because I just don't want to carry too much risk one way or the other. So that's one of my struggles I have with sizing. I don't focus enough on an individual ticker in each group to to maximise the opportunity there for the size that's available, I guess. Mm And and that two ninety nine, mate. Where where how did how do you or two ninety eight? If you put your your offer in there, how do you decide that that's fair value? I mean, did the if the stock closed at three twenty yesterday or at two dollars seventy? Does that, yep. how does that affect? So this particular day, so this is the twenty eighth of December. This is the day that most of the real estate investment trucks, the A trusts, the A rates went ex dividend. Okay. So on that morning, um, I noticed in a couple of the earlier groups that some of the REITs actually matched. They went ex, they were going ex-dividend that day, so they should have been dropping the amount of the dividend roughly. Um, but I noticed a couple of them actually opened flat or green. So I was like, shit, that's, you know, that's a bit strange on ex-dividend day that these are holding up. So S-Centre, this stock here, 
um, so I think it was paying about eight cent dividend. So it's dropped an eight cent dividend, and it's opening literally opening flat. So that to me, that's a huge opportunity. And when you look at the chart next to it, there it didn't drop anywhere near the amount of the dividend. In fact, it closed up at three dollars at the end of the day. Oh no, it didn't. Sorry, it closed at twenty nine, uh, two ninety. Six and a half. So it did close on the low, but it nowhere near, it, it fell nowhere near the amount of the dividend on that day. So to me, the catalyst was they're going ex dividend, they're opening flat. There should be a little bit of an opportunity there for a scalp off the open if I can get in, you know, on a flat or, or green open. So I took those. Um, another one, another one, just as an example. So this is another. Uh, sorry. So just with that center, mate, did you what what where where were you filled and did you take so profit there? I was filled at two ninety nine on this one, and I think mm -hmm. I did get out at two ninety seven on that mm -hmm. trade. I got two ticks out of that one, and SGP. So this is another real estate trust was in the same group opening. I also shorted this one on the match. You can see in this setup, it's got the right structure. It's got plenty of offers there, decent volume in the offers there, pretty thick up to 455. And it's pretty thin on the bid. So there's not a lot of resistance below me. There's plenty of sellers there, good volume being done on this match. But in uh, when you look at this after the open, it actually went up. So it matched at 449. That's where I got short in the match. And it, it went up and it wiped 450. I didn't cut it. I just sat on it thinking this is ridiculous because this was also uh, going ex-dividend uh, eight and a half cents, I think, on the day. So I just sat on it for a few minutes and eventually it did very, very low liquidity on that pop. There was no aggressive buying or anything at 450. And then after a few minutes, an aggressive seller just stepped in and just, he just marched the book down. So I think I caught this one. I was all out by 445 on this one. So... Um, yeah, I scaled out. I normally scale out. Um, if I've got a little bit of size on, I can scale out. So I think I took a bit off at two ticks down and then cut the rest at 4.45 on that particular trade. If if you have a good trade uh, that's presented to you, so it's an A setup, do you, obviously sizing um, is a constant issue for you. Do you increase your size on a good setup or do you increase your hold time or is it a combination of both when a really good setup presents itself? Um, it's a combination of both, yes. Uh, but in yeah. saying that, I still don't have very long hold times. So even though um, I think there might be more opportunity to hold a stock or a parcel, for a longer period throughout the day, holding it, you know, through to midday or 11 a.m. or whatever. I often, when I'm well in profit on a good trade, I often just take it. Like I couldn't mm. be stuffed just sitting there staring at that one trade to try and squeeze an extra couple of hundred bucks out of it. I'd rather take the money that's there. If it's been a good trade, I'll just take it. And then I'll just go and look for other opportunities elsewhere. So, yeah. It's something I could I could do better, 
one thing for me, Rupert, that's definitely something that I think I've learned over time is that, you know, if you're presented with a profit very quickly, it's, uh, I think in my experience, it's better just to take it instead of, as you say, sitting around all day in the, you know, even if you're expecting it to go a little bit further, it's just from a mental point of view, it's better just to uh, take the quick money. Yeah. And I've seen good trades reverse too. And I should have grabbed the chart of this one as well. The five minute chart would have been a good example we just spoke to, but this was my best trade this year was on Newmont match back on the 6th of December. So I watched Newmont most days because it's a CDI, so it's traded in the US. The main listing is in the US now. So you can calculate the Australian dollar fair value for Newmont on our market based off the US close each morning. So, you know, if it closed at 60 bucks, uh, if it closed at 45 bucks US today, you're just dividing that price by the Aussie dollar, Aussie AUD USD, let's say 67 cents, and that'll give you your Aussie dollar fair value price guide for today's open, okay? So on this particular day, I can't remember where Newmont fair value was for the Australian market, but it was it was like $61 something, right? Mm. So it was well above where this stock ended up opening on the day. And usually with Newmont, if it matches around 1% or more, away from fair value, from what I consider fair value based on the US close, I'll take a trade. And the further away from fair value that that match is, the bigger the size I'll end up putting on that trade Mm. Um, just because the risk-reward increases. And it's the same with most dual-listed names on our market. Um, They are worth watching. It's worth doing the numbers each day just so you're aware of what, the fair value price should be as a guide. And if you see an anomaly there where, like Newmont on this particular day, is opening way off what was fair value, then there's always a trade there. So I took this match that day. Um, I was long 1,500 shares in the match, and I wish I had been bigger. I normally start off at 500 shares in Newmont. So I I had a, a match bid in there, 500 shares, at like 60 bucks or something. And as as the price stayed where it is coming into the opening time, I chucked another 500 in there and I thought, shit, this thing's not going to close that gap. Like this is going to gap way below. So I put another mm. 500 in there and then I was in the process of trying to do another ticket and, it, and then it had opened by that time I didn't get any more size on. But like I said, in the heat of the moment in these trades and – to be honest, using I use Iris Viewpoint. It's a dog shit platform for day traders, unfortunately. That's all we've got available at the moment. So speed of order entry with that platform is not great for someone like me who's a shit typer to start with. <laughs> um, how, how often does it would these names kind of open up over 1% away from fair value, do you reckon? Um, well, to be honest... Newmont has has done it fairly regularly since the dual listing started. I really thought that would have been an inefficiency that obviously you're capturing, but I really thought that would have been gobbled up and no. there's no... Yeah, okay. No, so, really interesting. So, so I was actually talking to Bo about this uh, a couple of days ago that we had on our pod last time. And mm. 
Um, the only thing that I was kind of thinking of where you could, yeah, kind of capitalize on that is, you know, if you've got some large instos that for whatever reason just need to get rid of stock at the open, for instance, um, yeah. yeah, because their, cli- then, their clients have, to- have told them to, and that's where you can potentially take advantage of, um, yeah, that, that kind of and that's exactly what's happened on this day. And the telltale sign is look at the volume, 200, mm-hmm. nearly 220,000 units are going to be executed in the match here, 216,000. Mm-hmm. So this yep. this normally on Newmont, in the in the match, it's going to do somewhere around five to 10,000, right, on a normal day or less some days. It's mm-hmm. even less. Wow. But the... When you get these days where someone is selling on the open or buying on the open for that matter, you can get these huge mispricing opportunities there because, yeah, this is a very liquid stock at the end of the day, but on the open, there's not that much liquidity in the book usually. And that goes for a lot of large cap Aussie names. There's the, the liquidity in the book on the open is can be very low. Um, so when you get these anomalies where someone's got to sell a, a chunk, like happened this day with Newmont, it was just a massive opportunity. And I've replayed this. You could have bought another 5,000 shares on that particular open before that price would have moved off 5889 mm. Wow. So yep. there was huge liquidity there to still to lean on. And even above that, you've got... Yeah, you've got a level here and a level here of you know there thirty k orders there and there. I would have I would have happily paid up up to if it matched up here. I would have happily mm. bought there as well, mm. um, still with decent size. But anyway, the, I'll show you that what it looked like after it opened. So this is a minute after the open, matched uh. at fifty nine oh two. The mm. first trade after that was at sixty dollars sixty eight. It was only two hundred and fifty shares, but it's just a massive gap. So when you look at the previous slide I just showed you, look at the liquidity in the book on the sell side. There's your first sell. There's your mm. first offer mm. in the book. Yeah, wow. Mm. So if you're aware or you know what you're looking for in these particular plays, it's just a golden opportunity. You're going mm. to get a wick up. Every time on a setup like this, it might not be a big liquidity on the wick, but you're going to get a wick up, usually up near that first offer in the book, instantly. It'll be instant. Just need a bit of patience, don't you, to wait for those kind of opportunities and then load up. Because the algos, after the open, the algos come in. They'll fill that gap, and that's exactly what happened with Newmont that day. The algos slowly stepped up and they just kept putting bids and bids and bids and bids up until they started to get hit. People started to sell at what they considered to be a reasonable price on that Mm. day. So I ended up getting out of this. I got a parcel out um, at $60.40 from memory. I got some out at $60.30, $60.15-ish. And then I held a parcel because it was still below what I thought was fair value on that day, expecting it to come back up and wipe above 60.40. But it actually traded nearly all the way back down to 59.30. So if I had have just held this thinking it was an A-plus opportunity, I'm going to ride it until the price gets back up to fair value, man, I would have I would have been kicking Give myself yeah. riding it all the way back. So for me, taking profits immediately, 
um, on these match scalps is something I'll always do because you just never know where that price is going to go. Yeah. And if you leave a bit on the table, so be it. If you're mm. making good money in the meantime, you've got to be happy with that, you know. Like, yeah. So do you still aim for a few... Do you still aim for a few ticks on setups like this where there is a 1% plus gap? Or do you sort of trade all the way up until that inefficiency is closed and it's traded back to where that CDI is? Or are you still just playing that those few... Aiming for those few ticks. Uh, for, for this one, because the, the differential was so wide, I knew I would at least be able to get 100 ticks out of this one. Like it was that yep. far below mm. fair value. I was expecting this thing to whip straight up, you know, to that first offer in the book. Um, yeah, to be able I, to start. I guess whip it from what I'm hearing, like what, you, what you're really playing here is that, that inefficiency in the match, right? And if you go much beyond mm. that, if you end up holding for the day, that's where you're just going to flip a coin, whether you know the market's moving up or down, and that's yep. that's not what you're playing for. That's not your edge, is it? No, no. So you you need to have a reason, I guess, or a catalyst to take a trade. Any trade, in my opinion, you've got to have a you've got to have a reason why you're going to why you're doing it. So most of my setups are commodity based. Um, I'm not very good at trading fresh news because I call I consider fresh news plays uh, to be crowded trades, especially on the ASX. It's different in the US. They got a zillion stocks to trade and a zillion times more liquidity. But on our market, you get a couple of decent announcements a day. Every day trader and his dogs looking at that stock on the open, and it just becomes nearly impossible for. For me to trade something like that, and without taking on more risk than I'm comfortable with, I can size down, sure, but then I'm I might as well go and look for an easy, what I consider an easier opportunity uh, to trade where there's less eyes on it. I can I can make a high probability trade, take a few ticks, and that'll do me. Like, yeah. Like those property trusts that day, yeah. Who who's trading property trusts as a day trader? No one. I'm no happy one. to yeah. if I see an opportunity there or, or a good setup, I'll trade them every day of the week. And I traded property trusts probably. Oh, I was watching them most days um, in December. There just seemed to be opportunities there with interest rate speculation going up and going down. The property trusts were fairly impacted by. Oh, they're interest rate sensitive. So it was having a big impact on what they were doing. And they just went straight up from November. They, they just went straight up. You know, some of them have moved up 30% off the bottom. And there was just a lot more opportunities in those names um, in December. And I was trading them pretty regularly. It'd be interesting to see if there was any seasonality in those names. I guess with <clears throat> everyone down at their local Westfields and whatnot um, through that period, mm. whether. Uh, that that kind of played a role in a bit of demand, but mate, just just quickly on the uh, on your trade here. I know you don't said you don't really trade futures much, no. but what what's the chart looking like for you at the moment, mate? My my profits uh, been shrinking, so that means yours has been uh, increasing. We've only got tiny size on those, so yeah, <laughs> <laughs> sixty dollar profits certainly not going to elevate the leaderboard. I don't think you're um, under threat, Marto, with your, with your uh, win, but um. Sort of looking at this, and I've got BHP chart there as well, you might have noticed. 
just the bottom right mm. corner. I the only reason I've got BHP there is because it's the biggest name, so it tends to have a bit of an influence on the index. So mm. um, I don't know if iron ore is open yet. Yep, it's just opened. I don't, I don't have the iron ore chart in front of me, but I'm hoping that it's a little bit down today and it might drag BHP down in the index with it. Um, but, yeah, I'm happy to stay short for now mm-hmm. on this trade. Yeah, if I was yeah. watching it back here, I probably would have cut it when it popped up here. So lucky I wasn't watching the screen at that time. <laughs> what do they call that? False breakout? <laughs> it just looks like it. Has the, uh, has the match trade changed for you at all over the year that was? In terms of, you obviously mentioned liquidity down 17%. Um, has Did it change at all for you? Or was it just sort of less uh, opportunity there? There was just less opportunity. It hasn't changed. Yeah. Um, so I did a, I've got a, a pinned tweet, uh, my Whippet Twitter handle. Um, mm. You'll see there, I done that tweet back. Shit, it was probably a couple of years ago. Might be 18 months ago, whenever. I've been back and reread that thing a couple of times and it just describes what I'm looking for in, in a match setup, how I trade. And I, I still do exactly the same thing today. I haven't changed a thing in that. Um, Evernote document that I've pinned in that tweet mm. as to what I'm looking at, what I'm looking for today still. I just have a very solid routine every morning in terms of checking international markets, checking commodity price moves, checking dual listed names. Um, so what are you What are you specifically looking for there, mate? I'm just looking for big moves overnight. Is, was mm. there a big move in gold? Was there a big move in oil, uranium, coal? Coal today. So... If you look at Stanmore today, it was um, I, I took that trade off the match this morning. It was a nice trade. Um, thermal coal stocks in the US. So I used Finviz to check the US sector moves overnight. So I'll look at um, commodity prices in TradingView, oil and gold and coal and whatever. And if I see there was a decent move on one of those commodities, I'll confirm that with the sector move in the US via Finviz. So looking at the sector moves there and I'm seeing what the top sector was and what the bottom sectors were because they influence our sectors in that morning in our market as well. So, so you're looking for, stocks, a, for a lot, say, say the coal, coal and everything's gone up overnight. Are you hmm. then biased to the long side? Are you only looking yep. for long match plays? Yep, yep. correct. Okay. Uh, I, yes, I'll have a bias, but... It doesn't mean I wouldn't short one if it gapped up. And I was actually looking at Whitehaven this morning for a short on the open. I didn't take it, and I'm glad I didn't take it because I would have I would have um, took a loss on that trade. But I was looking if I was thinking to myself if Whitehaven gaps up, you know, three percent or more today on the open, and there was pretty good cover in the book as well for a short, I would have took that trade. It would have been worth the risk, given that it's had a couple of big days already. Uh, this week, whereas Stanmore hasn't. Stanmore's sort of been hovering around that $4 level for the last couple of days. It hasn't followed Whitehaven higher or New Hope. And given that thermal coal was the biggest sector in the US last night, I think it had like a 5% move, sector move overall. And you can look at the individual names in Finviz for that sector, and you'll see they're all up 3 4 5%. One of them was up 6%. 
So that was a good lead in. And then you look at Stan Moore order book this morning. There was huge bids in there, 70, 80K bids, pushing the price up about 1% on the open. I think it matched at $4.08. And that is where I had my bid, in fact. I was the first bid. I had 7,500 shares in there at 408 and I got filled on the match and just boom, 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 scaled out into a move into 414 straight off the open. And I made 330 bucks or something off that trade within, you know, a couple of minutes. So that's, that was an example of, that's an example of how I found that trade. Looking at commodities, moves overnight, looking at US sector moves, knowing Stan Moore, it's got a place in my heart of, I hold Stan Moore in my long-term stuff. I love the stock. Mm. Um, so I was happy to take that trade today with, you know, decent conviction, I suppose, that it was going to move up a little bit from that open. If it had a gapped up 5%, I wouldn't have touched it. I wouldn't mm. have taken it. I'm pretty disciplined in how much I'm prepared to pay on any given setup. So if at the last minute it moves up a few ticks above where I'm happy to pay, I'll just pull my order. I won't take it. Sometimes I'll leave an order in the market below the match price just for a minute or so just to see if the stock wicks back down and fills me at a price where I'm happy to get filled. But then I'll pull that order out of the market and I'll move on to the next group and trade something else. And yeah, DeGray was the only other ticker I traded today. DEG, it was a match. You look at the setup there, it was beautiful. Um, it was opening up one cent. Gold was relatively flat overnight but our gold stocks got fairly well hammered yesterday. So I thought DeGray was good for at least one tick. Anyway, a decent bid popped up just before the open. So there was good protection there. I think it was $1.19 was the open price. So I had a bid in for 10,000 10, units at one nineteen and a half. Got filled at one nineteen, and I sold at one twenty. I was the first offer in the book instantly at one twenty. There was no offers at 119.5 and I had an amended sell ticket ready to change that order from 120 to cut at 119. If that bid wall started to go, I would have just scratched that trade instantly. I don't fuck around waiting and praying and hoping and mm. not watching it when I'm in them match scalps. I wanted one or two ticks out of that trade. Um, as soon as I get that, I move on. If someone starts to wipe yeah, my protection, I'm out. Even if it rebounds later in the day, I couldn't give a shit. Yeah, that's just, that's, you've got to be very hard and fast on what you're trying to achieve here. And if it's not doing what you want it to do, you just get the fuck out straight away. Yeah. Yep, Move 100%. on. I'm going to put that as a quote on the um, on this video. I couldn't agree more. Hey, mate, yeah. can, you, um, can you just quickly, I saw some of the stuff that you put up um, and a lot of them seem to have, Gaps, so in stocks that had gaps down and then you were playing the long side. And I'm curious because the only kind of, I've got no no edge at all in equities, that's why I don't trade them. But the only thing that I, I kind of think is that I've seen a lot of stocks that gap down and then continue to fall over the, the next period. So I'm interested if you're trading long, what, what your kind of theory is behind that. Uh, it it's all depends on the book for me. Mm -hmm. Like... Um, yeah, oh, I, I can't I think short, of... short term, it doesn't, yeah, really. Yeah, like I'm, I'm literally looking at the first couple of minutes on most yeah. of those trades. I'm not buying stuff yeah. to hold for the day. or It's literally seconds, minutes, 
maybe 10 minutes, you know, if you're lucky. So mm. I'm just looking at what I think is a mispriced opportunity off the open based on all the other factors as to why that stock's moving or gapping to where it is and based on the order book. So if it stock's yeah. gapping down 3%, so say it's gold. Say gold <clears throat> say gold was down 1% overnight, GDX was down 2%. Well, I expect gold stocks to be down probably 1% or 2% um, that morning on our market. But if our stocks had a down day the day before already, and then they're gapping down another 3%, the next morning based on those couple of factors I just mentioned, mm. I see that as a long opportunity if the order book supports it. If I've got good protection on the long, on a long trade and if I can scalp a few ticks, yes, that stock might trade lower later in the day, but it'll probably, there's a probability it's going to match lower, let's say 3% down, it's going to rip up 1% maybe, before it rolls over and then, then continues to trade lower if gold trades lower in our session. But mm-hmm. it's just a mispricing opportunity in that moment on the open that I'm looking to take advantage of. I don't have a bias either way. It's just it's a visual thing for me. I can be looking at a stock, BHP, uh, yesterday. Just had it there. I had nothing to trade in Group 1. There's just nothing going on yesterday. And now I had BHP up there because it it wicks around pre-market into the open. You, you can get mispriced opportunities on that one pretty regularly. Mm. So its fair value based on US close was whatever. Anyway, it was gapping down. I was actually looking to take this thing long in the match. I even had a bid in the book, you know, a minute before the open, thinking, you know, I'll get a long scalp off this thing. It'll probably roll over, but I'll take the long. Anyway like 10 seconds before it actually opened, it just wicked up. Like someone had just come and dumped a couple of big bids in the book and it, all of a sudden it was gapping higher, you know, half a percent higher than the fair value close in the US. And when you looked at the setup in the book, it was just a couple of bids dragging the price up into just sell. There was there was just offers. There was no bids below to support the price. I knew this thing. If I thought, fuck, if this opens here, it's going straight down. There's a good 10, 15 ticks in this thing, no problems at all. And I'm, I had all the tickets there ready to go because I was thinking I was going to have a long trade there and I've always got a, a sell ticket ready to close that position. So I've got a ticket for each side of any trade I'm looking at ready to go before that trade even opens. Anyway, so I had the sell ticket there. I just played bang, popped a sell in, still had my offer in the book where I originally thought it was going to open. And yeah, it opened wick straight down. Like, yeah, I don't know. It took um, like 25 ticks or something off that within, you know, less than a minute. It just went straight mm. down. Mm. How do you go about juggling uh, simultaneous trades? For example, there you had Centre and Stockland. They open in the same group. Yep. And obviously speed of execution is, is very important for how you trade. Do yeah. you ever struggle with having two names or being in two trades at once when yeah. you know you are playing for ticks? Yeah, I do. So often, like I said, I watch four tickers in every group every day. Um, just looking for opportunities. You know, the more eyes, the more stocks you've got eyes on, the more likely you are to find an opportunity, especially in a quiet market. Um, so yeah, I'll be watching four tickers every day. 
Um, if in a hot market, and Group 4 is a good one, there's a lot of gold stocks in Group 4. So when gold has a big move, Group 4 is always busy. And I can't, I can't be watching enough stocks in Group 4 when gold is on. You've also got PLS in that group, so lithium might be on at the same time. Uh, it just becomes a crowded group for me. And I'm often stuck in multiple trades in Group 4. Um, mm. And it, it is distracting, but it's all based on the size of the opportunity and the risk that I might have on that trade. So often I'm going into those trades with fairly low risk, small size, unless an opportunity looks really good, then I will just focus on that one ticker. I won't even give a shit about the other opportunities in that group on that day. If something lines up like Newmont did that day earlier this month, I just zone in on that stock and just trade that as best I can because the opportunity is much higher. But if there's just a bunch of stocks like gold in Group 4 and gold's had a big move and, and I see small opportunities in, in multiple names, I'll take multiple trades in that group, but it'll be with smaller size. Yeah. And yep. I won't be in them long. I'm just looking for a quick scalp off the open, bang, get out. If something yep. does a bit more than I think, I might stick with it for a bit longer. But, yeah, it it there's so many nuances in in uh, this match scalping. And I'm yeah, far yeah. from perfect at it, I can tell you now. I could do yeah. it. I, I can definitely improve a lot um, in, in how I do it. But, yeah, it's a real personal feel thing, a visual thing. Mm. You just see stuff. Mm. Sometimes you're looking at a, a setup in Spark and you just go, shit, this is a great opportunity. I need to bloody yeah. smoke this one. It just jumps yeah. out of the yeah. screen at you. Yeah. Mate, we've... Spoken a lot about uh, your scalping strategy, but I'm sure this isn't where you first cut your teeth in the market. How did you, how did you first get involved in the market, and what was your evolution from from that beginning to where you are now, and the balance between those sort of three strategies that we first touched on? So I first started. My first trade was in 2004. At the end of 2004. Uh, we just sold our first house. We'd made a bit of money on it, and I had a bit of had like twenty grand available to play with, and um, I had no uh, interest in markets or exposure to markets at that time. We just happened to be talking to my wife's grandfather one day, who he he did like stocks, and he was invested in the stocks through uh, stockbroker ABN Amro Morgans. They were a full service stockbroker, and talking to him this day and I was just fascinated by what he was telling me. I was like, shit, that sounds good. I've got a bit of cash here. You know, do you think you could hook me up with, with your broker? So he did that. His name was Ted, this bloke, old fella. And uh, so I set up an account, sent him the money and he put me in four stocks. He put me in BHP, Telstra, Sydney Gas and Ventricore were the four stocks. So I had two blue chips and two speckies. He put five grand in each, and um, yeah, BHP ended up ended up um, being like a two bagger for me. Telstra did nothing over that year, and Sydney Gas and Ventricore essentially both went broke. <laughs> and because <Great. laughs> of the um, experience with Sydney Gas and Ventricore and losing that money, I got really filthy with Ted, the broker, at the time, and that was enough. And, and uh, during that time, so say 12 months from when I 
you know, met up with him and put that money in to when I sort of, you know, experienced the losses and the gains. I just got hooked on the stock market. I got hooked on doing research, especially, you know, researching Sydney Gas and, and VentureCore and trying to understand what these companies did that I owned a share of. And I took those losses in the end and I was pissed off with Ted. So I said, fuck it, I can do a better job myself. I don't need Ted's advice. So I opened up a ComSec account <laughs> and at the time, it was still his brokerage was, you know, nineteen ninety five a trade on Comsec, where it was sixty five bucks a trade through through Ted. So, you know, his commissions were huge, but it's full service broker, you get what you pay for, I suppose. Anyway, so I ditched Ted, took all my money off him and opened up Comsec account and I just from that day onwards I'd never looked back. I've just you know, loved the market ever since. I've I've been invested through the GFC, took a absolute flogging in the GFC. I think I lost about 30 grand and I had about 50 grand in the market at the time. So, you know, that was a decent haircut in the GFC. I actually was investing in a lot of dog shit companies when I look at it in hindsight. ABC Learning Centres, Badcock and Brown, Allco Finance, all these companies went broke in the GFC, literally shut the doors, delisted. And the common theme with a lot of them was debt, you know, any company that was carrying a shit ton of debt in the GFC just got absolutely steamrolled. Um, they couldn't get refinance their debt and they just got busted, couldn't raise equity. So that was a huge lesson um, and, and a good one. A good one to learn at that time because I didn't have a lot of money in the markets. It felt like a lot of money at the time, but it, it was a good experience to only lose 30 grand, I feel, at that time. And you know, I was able to make that back over the years anyway, since then, so that was good. But at that time, and right through that first 10 years, I was just investing more long-term, nowhere near as active as I am today. So I just buy you stuff. You have to learn a lot of the fundamentals there in terms yeah. of um, understanding how balance sheets, cash flow worked. And was that something that you, you had previous experience with or was that something that you, uh, all a learning curve and how'd you go about learning that I don't have a tertiary education. I left high school in year 10, so I'm very undereducated um, compared to a lot of participants in the stock market. But I did just educate myself. The, for the last 20 years, mate, I've just been non-stop educating myself. I just love it. I think you've got to be very passionate about the market to do what we do as traders today. But, yeah, fundamentals has always been my... Um, I've always sort of been led by fundamentals um, in stocks. So especially anything that I want to own for more than a day, I have to have the belief in the fundamentals of that stock to be able to do that. I just cannot own a company overnight that just doesn't make any money. It's got nothing supporting it. I've never invested in crypto for that very reason. There is no fundamental basis to own cryptocurrency. So I've Never ever gone down that path, and I never I've never been tempted to either. Um, so you've spent twenty years uh, sort of learning. Mm. Top two resources that you can recommend our viewers, whether it's something that you use today on a daily basis or a book or something. Top oh, or a person, it can be anything. Top two resources. It's a, it's a good one. I, like I originally started learning everything off the ASX. To be honest, like. 
the ASX website was where I I remember initially going to to try and just garner as much information as I could on on investing and stuff. So that's where I got a lot of my information to start with. How I under, un, came to understand all the, the fundamental stuff, I just don't know. It's just a lot of reading and making mistakes and drive to understand a balance sheet. Um, but there's a guy on YouTube who, oh, geez, I can't think of this. He's an Indian guy. He He's a lecturer. He's got some awesome content about fundamental analysis for anyone. Um, yeah, he hit me up on Twitter I'll or something. I'll ask you about and, it afterwards. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll um, find his I'll name. I'll put it in the show notes. But he, yep. he's got some brilliant content um, when it comes to fundamental analysis and just hours and hours and hours of videos on balance sheets, basically, and, and how to understand them. And he's US-based, gives a lot of examples with US-listed companies on their balance sheets and stuff. So that would be a great resource for anyone interested in fundamentals, for sure. And and on the matching side, probably what Spark and yeah. anything else you'd recommend? Look, it took me a long time to get my head around the day trading. And I tried half-hearted attempts before this you know, successful attempt this time around. And the biggest problem I had initially was I didn't have the right tools. So I never, I was never aware of Spark um, when I first, you know, speculated trying to make day trades and just getting chopped up. Um, low, low cost brokers are for for my style of trading anyway. My commissions are huge, are a huge part of my P and L. So I need to have the best commission structure I can find, and that that's been difficult in the past. Yeah, you know, it's not until you. Yeah, recent years you've got some of these very low cost um, DMA CFD brokers that you know offer you good commission rates where you can make this style of trading actually work. If you tried to do what yeah. I do through Comsec, you'd be losing yeah. a shit ton no of money. Chance. Yeah, like, yeah, it's just impossible, you know, to day trade through a platform like Comsec on that commission structure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, hey, not that, not scalping anyone. Can, can you can you do that strategy through CFDs? Through synthetic CFDs, do they does they that work? Or do you be, need to be DMA. They have to be DMA. Otherwise, you cannot participate in the match. So, you okay. know, CMC markets they offer CFDs, and IG offer CFDs, but they're not DMA. So you can only place a trade once the stock is open. So it has to match first, and then have a bid and offer in the in the book after the match for you to be able to take a trade with those mm-hmm. brokers. You have to so have. So if you put a if you put a limit order in pre-open, doesn't get filled in the match. Doesn't get filled. No, okay. it's not filled in the match. Mm-hmm. You've got to have those. Yeah. You can only place those trades after the open. So it's just okay. you. You just need that DMA access. You need to be able to see your order in the book. You need to be able to watch that uh, that book in Spark as it's opening, so you can make those decisions whether you leave that that order there, whether you pull it or. or what you're doing like you've got to have visibility of of everything Mm -hmm. yeah yeah okay no that's great thank you that's a lot of but but the tools are important like definitely if i didn't have spark there's no way i could do this i could not do this just using iris i couldn't do it if spark Mm. if they took spark away tomorrow i'd be fucked yeah 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 okay interesting and then your options exposure just came through that youtube 
yep. that you mentioned earlier, and that's something that you've grown organically through yourself there thereafter. Yep. yep. Yeah. Gotcha. Something gotcha. I've built on over time since 2015. It's just been a steady income strategy that's worked very well for me over the years. Uh, yeah. And and yep. it's not a huge part of my trading, but I've always got money allocated to that because it's yep. relatively consistent. Yep. Okay. No, really good. What What's the split of your scalping options and long-term? Like where are you getting the most return from, say, in a calendar year? Yeah, so my long-term stuff is my biggest earner for me. Um, and I haven't mentioned how I trade long-term when I talk long-term. It's very active long-term. So I'll just pull up this example of Yan Cole um, traded back oh, wow. through 2022, this one. It's just... Um, That's very active. Yeah. yeah. So this is an example of how I trade long-term. <laughs> I make a lot of trades, and so I'm scaling in and scaling out all the time. While ever I have a fundamental belief in that stock, I'll trade it like that until that changes. So once the fundamentals change, in this case, coal price started coming off, they went ex-dividend, and the future earnings potential was looking lower, I just stayed out of Yankol because the, the thesis had changed. It was no longer as attractive on a fundamental basis, so I didn't trade it. I started trading Stanmore. So Stanmore has been a, a stock I've traded super actively in my long-term account over the last year. Um, there's, yeah, there's a whole number of ones I've traded, but this is just an example of how I do it long-term. When I say long-term, I'm in, out, in, out, in, out. If this stock kept falling, for example, at the start there, if that price kept going down, 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 I would have just kept adding and adding and adding up to a, a max position size of 50K and then just scale out on any rips. And it it's just a strategy that works well for me. Um, and it is, it's a pretty consistent sort of earner. Um, you know, I'll be fairly heavy in cash when the market's high, like it is now, just the, the way this strategy works. And as the market's dropping, I'm just getting deeper and deeper and deeper into positions that, that I fundamentally like. And just knowing that it's got the fundamentals to back them, if they ever change on that individual stock, I'll take the loss. I'll get out. And I'll tell you one I'm in right now, it's PPE. It's really been giving me a flogging. I started buying that thing at $2, uh, where it went um, just before it went ex-dividend, at the, at the full year results in the middle of this year. And that thing went below a dollar um, back at the start of December. And I was fairly heavily underwater on that stock and I was at my max position size when it got under a dollar. Thankfully, it's come back um, and I've been able to scale out of a few parcels up to as high as a dollar thirty recently to get back to a much more comfortable size. Uh, but I am still a little bit underwater on that stock at the moment. But... Nothing has changed on the on my fundamental view of that business at this point in time. Um, nothing changed when it was at a dollar for me to say I'm out, even though I was taking a lot of heat. I was not selling that stock until I knew something was had changed or been confirmed as changed to take that loss at that level. So do you derive an underlying price target for these longer-term trades? Like, for example, Yale here, you've sort of got that 630, 640 mark. Is that a price target that you've sort of determined as fair value or is um is it more whether a sector is in 
in flavor or the, the company is, you know, yeah. you, you've seen a really good run and you're exiting. How, how are you deriving where you see, uh, I guess, a discount and then a premium in terms it, of that share price? Because it's a commodity stock, am I getting close to yep. my, one hour? Do I have to uh, yeah, yeah, you're done. My bad. Yeah. Can you oh, close that out? Triggers. One job, man. Sorry, sorry. I was too invested. I was too invested. To <laughs> that's, good. that's good. That's good. Perfect. Uh, My bad. So I need to get out of this. So if you one. just click the buy, buy twenty. 20. I'll bank my. Bank, that's one hundred and ten. One hundred and ten dollars. I'm so yeah. glad. Hey, I that's good. Win. Win's a win. <laughs> that's good. That's really good. I'm pretty happy. Well with done. That. Well done. <laughs> Considering I'm not a, a uh, midday trader uh, <laughs> by any stretch. Just to make a profit, I'm, I'm glad I didn't embarrass myself. Ah, <laughs> mate, that, congratulations, mate. That puts you in uh, fourth place there. We've got, <laughs> obviously, Mardo still at number Um, You know what? I'm just going to accidentally omit Mardo's uh, <laughs> return there. So we've got Mardo number one, Chogas, Bo, yourself, and then Dan taking up uh, the bottom at the end. So awesome. Thanks for participating in that. That's great. Yeah, that's I think it look, yeah, looks great. like it's... If you had another ten minutes, you'd be great. Um, <laughs> I hey, mate, I know, no. I know we only had a an hour today, but just a, a, a quick fire question. So, give you a million bucks, and you got a year. Where are you? How are you dividing it up, strategy wise? What are you? What are you doing with it? Um, well, I would put most of that in my uh, longer term strategy. So, yeah, that scale in, scale out, fundamentals, um, mainly because. You can you can get a lot more size on in that strategy. Um, I am limited pretty much in my day trading. I, I can't even use the buying power I have today in my day trading. So there's no reason to allocate more capital to that strategy because I can't use what I've got available right now. Yeah. So I'd have to allocate it to my longer term stuff, mm -hmm. um, and that's exactly what I would do. And I would still have a just a small allocation you know, 20% or so maybe to my options strategy as well. Um, it's just mm -hmm. it's good to have a few things going on to, because you're watching the screens a lot during the day. It just keeps you active and it keeps you out of making boredom day trades as well. So yeah. I can often spend time after the open um, just looking for more fundamental opportunities or managing positions in that active portfolio or I might be looking at, a, you know, some options plays or something like that, you know, during the day as well. So I'm not just focusing on the day trading stuff uh, when I shouldn't be, really. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. Can you talk to us about bow hunting? Mm. What uh, Obviously, we send out a, a pre-podcast questionnaire, and one of uh, the questions is around your hobbies and where you spend time when you're not looking at... Uh, prices going up and down and you came back with bow hunting which mm. Mardo and I both were like oh it's, that's really interesting <laughs> so but talk to us what like what what is bow hunting what are you doing is it a weekend hobby um so something I've done since I was a kid I grew up in a rural mm. area um out at, at Narromine uh, is where I grew up I've always lived in rural areas sort of my grandparents owned a farm but I had mates at school right from school that were all into hunting Started out with hunting, you know, feral pigs with dogs. As a young fellow, we'd go out every weekend and just be chasing pigs. And then uh, I ended up getting a bow. I think it was my 16th birthday. My parents bought me a compound bow. And I had an uncle that was uh, doing a bit of bow hunting at the time as well. So I was able to go out with him 
and we would go and hunt goats in the hills just to the east of town. Um, so that was my first experience to bow hunting, and I was hooked on that. Like it's just, uh, you know, I've hunted all forms over the years, rifle hunting and everything else, but just the ability to, you know, get in so close to an animal, which you have to do when you're bow hunting, and observe those animals in an undisturbed state, it just fascinates me. And you're competing against nature. You know, these animals are wired, mm. you know, for yeah, uh, danger 24-7. Yeah, so for a human to get close to something like a deer, you know, if you can get 10 metres away from a fellow deer in in its natural state, it's a pretty surreal feeling, even though, yeah, I'm going to hunt that thing and I'm going to kill it. Mm. Uh, that's just part of the process. But it's just that experience you get. And it's such a de-stressing thing. Yeah, from work and from trading and everything else you've got going on in life. When you're out in the bush, it's just, I don't know, I find it very therapeutic um, to go hunting. And I've made some good mates through hunting over the years. But bow hunting is my real passion. Like, I just love that. I'm actually going out west in a couple of weeks for a week with a mate hunting pigs. Um, Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to that. What's the predominant skill set? For an invite, mate. (laughs) (laughs) The predominant skill set. Oh, look, I don't like, know. Is it, is it being able to get close to the animal? Is it being able to shoot with accuracy? Like, which, oh, all those what's things. The biggest... like, yeah. You've definitely got to be competent in your equipment. So if you're a bow hunter, you know, you've got to be competent in the distance that you can shoot um, and, and your confidence at that range as well. So, you know, often um, I'll be shooting anything out to about 30 metres even though, you know, the bow's got capacity to shoot something, no problems out to 60. Um, I, I'm not, I, I would rather get into 30 metres to be competent to take that animal humanely um, and place that shot accurately for for, for an effective kill um, than what I would at shooting something at 60. I'd only ever take a longer shot on an animal that I may have wounded. Um, unfortunately, that happens from time to time. Uh, I would do that to, to try and finish an animal off but. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm not too bad at my sport. I hold the the um, number two spot for scrub bull in Australia on the on the um, bow hunting list. I shot that last October up in Cape York. Yeah, it was a monster, a big Brahmin scrub bull up there, and um, yeah, that was a one of my bucket list items to do. And I was fortunate enough to be able to do that last October. So yeah, I was pretty stoked with that. And do you, do you eat the venison? Do you, yep. do you do the whole? Yeah, yeah, I love it. I make I make sausages primarily, so yeah. um, often I'll take all the meat off a off a young sort of fallow doe, and then I'll just mince all that up, add pork fat to that, about twenty percent pork fat, and a few bits and bobs, and yeah, I'll make make sausages, and I'll eat. We'll eat those sausages here at home over the course of the next six months. You know. And I also make jerky from time to time as well. Venison's a good meat to use for jerky because it's very lean, doesn't have a lot of fat on it, and you don't want fat in your jerky. So venison makes really good jerky. I've got a dehydrator there that I dust off from time to time and they make a bit of jerky as well. Mm. It's been on my bucket list for a few years, mate, to take the kids actually hunting to show them that whole kind of circle of life in terms of, you know, stripping the stripping the beast down and mm. eating and all the rest of it, but it's a bit bit hard to find uh, someone to, to 
to organise it. But anyway, maybe I've maybe I've got a contact now. Maybe. <laughs> um, the only other one I really quickly wanted to touch on is you said that you uh, had recently it was a built and then sold a self storage business. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, we were. So a bit, I'm living Wagga. We came here in uh, the end of. 20, the start of 2018, and uh, my in-laws live in Tumbarumba. Anyway, um, one day we're having a beer, and I was having a beer with my father-in-law, but he's got a little block there, um, little scrub block, and he mentioned this block of land that was for sale, this industrial block, it was a 90 grand or 95 grand. He said, it'd be a great little industrial site just out of town, to build some storage units because all the storage units in that town were full. So there was demand there for storage and there wasn't enough supply. Anyway, I didn't think much of it. And I thought, you know, this we'll be having this conversation for six months before we do something about it. It was literally a couple of weeks later. He rings me up. This was in August of that year. I remember because I was up at the Gold Coast at the time. And he goes, um, I've spoken to the real estate and someone else is interested in that block of land. We're going to have to act fast, basically. So I'm like, oh, shit, right here. So we bought that block of land. It was 10 acres, 90 grand or 95 grand or whatever it was. And we had no plan beyond that. So we had no plan on how we were going to do this storage business or anything like that. Anyway, we went with shipping containers um, as the lowest cost option. And we had access to some containers that we could get, good quality containers, um, we ended up with a dozen shipping containers on that block for self-storage and we rented them out like 36 bucks a week or something. And the biggest battle we had was actually getting the DA approved. It took forever. The council, Snowy Valley's council at that time, went through three different engineers over the course of like six months when we were trying to get the DA approved. So every time you'd bloody talk to them to try and make some progress, you'd be talking to a different person, starting from scratch and anyway i lost patience i was ready just to fucking cut my losses let's just get rid of this block of land this is never going to happen the council is just being too difficult but thankfully my father-in-law was very persistent we went halves in this um he just kept working on the council he kept you know liaising back and forth until we sort of knew exactly what we needed and we got everything done and he had some contacts around town which was very fortunate that helped get things done and yeah we progressed, we got the DA and literally took us, you know, two months or two to three months and we had the whole thing up and ready to go from once we got that DA approved. And it cost us a bit under 200 grand all up. So we chucked in 100 grand each, that was our budget, including the block of land, um, to build this thing and get it off the ground. And we knew if we could do that, we could make a reasonable return on 200 grand and the value would be when we do come to sell it. Yeah, we had roughly a five-year plan um, as to when we would, would sort of turn this business over and realise some profits. Anyway, that come to fruition uh, this year or, or mid-2023. We decided that the time was right to sell. Uh, there was demand for industrial land in town at the time. There was literally nothing. You could not buy any industrial land. So uh, we, we sort of approached a fellow actually about wanting to buy, if he wanted to buy uh, this business and this land. And he was really keen and he essentially made us a pretty good offer. We couldn't refuse. So we pretty much 
tripled our money on that investment in five years and it's given me a nice um, a nice bit of funding, I guess, to expand our investments in the markets and things like that from the middle of, of last year. And um, I'm looking at retiring from the workforce uh, in six months' time. So August this year, uh, I'm going to pull the pin. I've been in the same role for over 26 years now. And I've sort of, and although I enjoy what I do, I've sort of had enough. I'm so passionate about trading now, and that's all I want to do. So that's what Brilliant. I'm going to do. Right. Well done, mate. That's great. Um, Where can people go if they want to reach out to you, chat to you, find any of the um, the trades that we sort of touched on or results and everything like that? Where can people go? Twitter is probably the best place. I'm very active on there, as you probably know. Um, So, yeah, my Whippet handle is trade at trade for a underscore living, and that's trade number four. A underscore living with no G, just L I V I N. And I've got a another handle which is option underscore premium, and that's where I post uh, more charts on stocks that I'm trading in my active portfolio um, and the odd options uh, sort of shout out in there as well. So, yeah, that's probably the best place to find me. Well, Whippet, thank you so much for coming on the Traders Live podcast. I think all of our viewers have got a lot out of today's session, especially on the strategy side and and really getting into the nuts and bolts of that. So thank you for sharing all of that. If if anyone out there did really enjoy that, make sure you subscribe, um, leave a like and comment as to who who we should find um, and chat to next. But Whippet, we are going to have to get you on again sometime because <laughs> I feel like there's just there's two other strategies that we're going to need to sort of delve into at some stage. But yeah, really appreciate your time, mate. Thank you. No worries. Thanks, Thanks for having Whippet. me, guys. Cheers, buddy. All right.